This is a, a story about brothers, and if you know the story, it's in the context of three parables. And the parables that Jesus is teaching is about the thing of lost. And oftentimes when we think about lost, right, when we talk about, oh, that person's lost, especially if you've been in church for a long time, it's like, oh, I would like for you to pray for my friend who is lost, you know, it's like, you know, when you get in the prayer, it's like, I have a boss at work that if you could just pray for them, because he's lost. And when we think of the word lost, what do you think of? You think of like, you know, they're lost. They're like in this dark area. They don't know where they are. And, 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 but the Bible in this word lost is not, doesn't mean that they're kind of lost, but rather that they're missing and greatly valued. Okay? So when... These three parables, when they talk about lost, is actually something that is missing but greatly valued. There was the parable of the lost sheep, where Jesus talks about you have a hundred sheep, the one of them leaves, and you leave the 99 for the one. And he talks about the lost coin, if this woman has a coin and she loses it, she would look, search everywhere to find his coin. So there's this idea of the lost, meaning that there's missing but greatly valued. And now we come to the story of the two lost sons. It's not just the prodigal son. Most of the, the, the sermons that you heard or I've heard growing up was always focused on the first younger brother. So today we're going to deal with the younger brother. And then tomorrow we're going to deal with the older brother because they're both lost. But we're going to deal with this one where if you look on the surface, the younger brother seems like this courageous kid. YOLO! Right? He has this YOLO attitude. You only live once. So he goes to his father and he asks. And we're going to look at the passage for this inheritance. And then we just kind of, we learn and we'll read it and then we'll go through it. But I'll, before we do that, I want to share a story about my sister. She's evil. She was born evil. Um, and she, we're seven years apart, so you can imagine. Seven years apart. And she bullied me for most of my life until I was big enough to, you know, beat her up. But there was one time when I was eight years old, my sister and I, because we're latchkey kids, and if you don't know what latchkey kids are, and uh, as immigrant kids, my parents worked seven days, six to seven days. So basically, me and my sister raised ourselves, and we had a key that we would go home and take care of ourselves. By the time I was 10 years old, I knew how to cook, like, mad good Chinese food. So at eight years old, my sister and I, we always do laundry together. And the laundry is like, you know, about a block away. We go and we do laundry. And then one day we went to the laundry room and my sister goes, hey, do you know what that is? And I said, dryer? And she goes, no, 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 it's not a dryer. And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, mommy didn't tell you this. Daddy didn't tell you this. But that's actually a time machine. (laughs) And I was like, get out of here. I'm not that stupid. And then she goes, no, no, but... Think about it, though. Just think for a moment. Do you ever realize your socks are always missing? <laughs> like, where does it go? I was like, yo, that's true. <laughs> and she goes, because it gets trapped in a time machine and it goes into different times. And as a stupid eight-year-old kid, I was like, really? And she goes, but only few people do, like, know about it. And I said, did you go to the time machine? She goes, when I was your size, Yes. Do you want to try it? (laughs) And I said, sure. Is it going to hurt? She goes, no, it actually feels really good. So she 
puts me in the dryer. And then she asks me, do you want to go in the future or you want to go in the past? <laughs> you know, she's so like evil because she like knows my mind and what I'm thinking. And I'm like, because back then it was like Star Wars. I was really big in Star Wars. And I'm like, I want to go in the future, 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 future. And she goes, okay, how far in the future? I said, I don't care. Just go. <laughs> I'm so excited. She closes the dryer and she puts the coin in. And I start spinning. And my head is hitting the side of it, and I'm seeing stars, and I'm like, it's working! <laughs> I'm so excited to see Luke Skywalker. And she opens it up, and I see her, and I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? And she goes, we're eight seconds into the future. <laughs> and my mom came on and goes, why does your brother have bruises on his head? And my sister says, do you say anything? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to send you into the future for good. So here's the story of these siblings. They're just kind of, Jesus trying to give us a picture, right, of these siblings. And I showed you about these four loves. And these kind of, this passage actually kind of touches upon these four loves that the younger brother had. So if you can read with me, we're going to Luke 15. And it's in verses... One through, we'll just go through one, and then we'll try to finish up as much as possible. Oh, and I'm sorry. Yeah. Verse 11, here it goes. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And we had spent everything. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible parable to show the heart of God. I thank you for this teaching from Christ that reminds us that wherever we are today, that the story is to show us who you are. That is our goal, is not to show 
how awesome this retreat site is, how awesome this experience is, but how awesome you are. I pray for those who are doubting right now. I pray that you would, again, give them patience to listen. Give them attentive ears to at least be open to what, if there is a God out there, how he wants to speak to them. And we ask for just clarity, and we ask for a sense of attention that you give and strength, especially as we're about to go into our small groups for the first time. I pray that we're prepared to share the things that are moving in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Before I start, just one clarification. My name is Peter Ong, not No Neck. Like, some of you say, hey, what's up, No Neck? And I'm like, that's like for my son. (laughs) Okay? So anyway, we were learning about these four loves. And the first one that I mentioned was this idea of what? Was Eros. And here in the later in the, in, the, in the parable, I didn't read it right now, but there's this sense that the older brother kind of knew that he spent his life and his money on what? Reckless living. But one of the one things that he did was to meet with, for the younger ears, prostitutes. And basically he was paying money to have relations with a woman. And the point that I want to share with you is that everything that God gives us, even arrows, is a good thing. But the one thing that the enemy tries to do, and the only thing the enemy knows how to do, is he doesn't create adultery. Adultery is a distortion of something that's good. The devil and the Satan or demons or whatever you want to call it, they have no creative power. But he takes something that's good and distorts it. And one of the most profound ways is this idea of epithemia, wanting more than what is normal. So here's this thing about eros, this romantic love, this binding love, this covenantal love, which means a, a, a love that's supposed to be girded under promise is distorted by just, I'm going to have a transaction with this person so that they can have a relationship with me. That's eros. He's pursuing it. In my own life... There was a time where I was obsessed with girls. Obsessed. Because growing up, remember actually I was growing up in different neighborhoods. And, you know, in American culture, I don't know, probably in England is different. But in American, like there's like the white guy is like the top guy. You want Brad Pitt. Right? Brad Pitt is the man. Then if you're really, really desperate and you kind of like grow up in a different neighborhood, then Denzel is the man. Right? And then, moving down the totem pole, you have the mixed guy. You know, half black, half white, or even the half Asian. You know, Obama, right? He's a pretty good-looking guy. Asians were like the last because we had no, like, representation. Like, we had Jackie Chan. And no one looks at Jackie Chan and says, yo, he's hot. <laughs> like, if you do, you have problems. There's counseling for you. But I was obsessed with girls, and I would do everything I can to get a girl. That's why when I was in college, uh, me and my, my best man at my wedding was this guy named Harvey. He was Christian. I wasn't Christian at the time. But he would get all the girls. You know why? Because he was good looking. He was a gymnast. His body was like, was jacked. He was just amazing. And I would get all the girls because why? I was funny. <laughs> and I was cute. <laughs> I was a teddy bear. And it was this kind of driving thing, and it was something that 
it, it, it was distorted because I was trying to find every single girl, and then every time this girl was like, it would complete me. And it validated me. And it gave me the sense of worth. It gave me a sense that I'm here. And now, even when I was pursuing my wife, it crept in because it was all about wanting to acquire this person. It wasn't because I actually like you. It wasn't even that I think you were that. Well, I, I th- she was pretty attractive. Um, but there wasn't the sense that I really wanted to care for her. But it was just to get her. And I had to fight against that because I was like 35. I was getting older. And my mom was giving me pressure. So I had to pursue. And I pursued it. And there was this kind of, again, this epithemia, this, this over-desire that everything became what I wanted was this person. And here in this passage, he went through that. He went through this arrows, wanting that. But then when the money ran out, what happened? No more. When the resources are gone, these relationships are gone. The other aspect was filio, phileo. Was he was pursuing reckless living. How did he have reckless living? He probably enjoyed it with other guys. I grew up in a neighborhood, again, where I had a lot of guy friends, and I get it. One of the most powerful things you'll ever go through as young men and young women is at this age is great friendships. When I was in a gang, I'll be honest with you, it was the best friendships I ever had. I'll never forget one time I was walking, because back in the days, we used to have, like, areas called turfs. And in the turfs, there's one gang had this area you can walk around, right? And then I was part of the Confucius boys, I know that sounds so racist, but I was Confucius boys because it was this Confucius Plaza in Chinatown. So we was part of like the we were like the second tier dragons, the flying dragons. So we hung out with the Confucius boys. So Confucius boys had one two blocks that we were allowed to kind of cover, but there's this other block that you're not allowed to walk. And Bayard was like for the other gang. But one day I was walking, I was like, "Yo, forget it. I'm just gonna walk through this through this street. What's up?" Nothing's going to happen. I'm going to walk. And I walk, and guess what happens? The other gang was there, about six guys. What did I do? I said, yo, what's up? What are you going to do? I was so scared. <laughs> and they jumped me. They're kicking me. They're punching me. And then you know what I hear next was this girl said, get off of him. And you know who this girl was? It wasn't my sister. My evil sister was probably taking pictures. <laughs> It was a girlfriend of one of my, my gang brothers. And you know what she did? She jumped in and started punching these guys, and they destroyed her. But then she got on top of me and just held me while they were kicking me. And we're walking back home. She had a black eye. I had a black eye. And I was like, yo, we could have took them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, I haven't experienced that ever again, even in Christian circles. Like Christian circles, I'm pretty sure if some like a group, like someone get, jumped on me right now, you all be like, oh, let's just pray for Peter. <laughs> just pray that they would not kick him. Because when I was at camp, I used to run a summer camp outreach called uh, 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 Camp Herald. There was this one night. The cook called in the middle of the night. He says, yo, Peter, I caught something huge. And I was like, No. There's no way he caught anything huge. You know how fish stories are? They're like, I caught a fish this big. It's really this big. But he called and he says, y'all, this is the biggest fish ever. You got to come out in the middle of the night. So we go out in the middle of the night. We pull this thing out. You know what it was? It was a snapping turtle. It was like, I mean, it was seriously big. We put it in a garbage. You call it a, I got a trash bag, a trash can. 
what do you call it? Rubbish, rubbish, rubbish bin. Uh, put it in a rubbish bin, and it would like scream in the middle of the night. Go, and then one time I was just playing with it to make sure it was alive with a broomstick. It snapped the broomstick. Like it got hold of it, and we're pulling it, and it snapped it. So we called the, the natural resources, and we said, what do we do with this? We have campers coming in. They swim in the same pond. What should we do? And the natural resources said, oh, just throw it back in. And I said, no, there's going to be, like, campers, like Chinese campers, small, tiny campers. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, it's okay. They're, they're really bottom dwellers. They're not going to come up. Don't worry. And even, if, even if they do come up, they're, they're so scared of most humans. So just throw it back in. I said, for real? So we threw it back in. Then three days, there was this huge rainstorm, huge rainstorm. Okay? And because of the rainstorm, it has this anchor on a dock, and the dock moved about, like, 30 feet. So we had to pull up the anchor and pull back uh, the dock where it needed to be. Okay? I was one of the best swimmers at the camp with the lifeguard. So the lifeguard, me, and the cook went in, and we said, one, two, three, go down. And we went under, and we would swim up the anchor, and then someone would push the dock. So as I went under with the lifeguard and the cook... I felt this sharp pain on my chest. Like something just like took a bite out of me. Okay? And I go up in the water and I go... (laughs) And one of the most powerful scenes in my whole Christian walk, the lifeguard and the cook, they swam away. (laughs) All I saw was the back of their feet swimming away. And I was like, lifeguard, lifeguard. <laughs> and then I looked down, and it turned out it wasn't a snapping turtle. It was a fish that was biting on my nipple. <laughs> and it was bleeding. And I went to the nurse, and the nurse was laughing at me the whole time, putting a Band-Aid on my on my chest, and then when I went back to the camp, all the kids were laughing. And they gave me a new name, Nippy. (laughs) And I went to the lifeguard and the cook, and I said, you Christian, and you're a lifeguard. And they're like, well, we we couldn't do anything. And I said, you're going to pull the snapping turtle. It wasn't a snapping turtle, it was a fish. And the reality is that Although phileo is powerful, it's, it's incredible. It fails. And in this particular case, again, when these resources were gone, what happened? They were not there. It was gone. Then storhe. One of the most poignant parts of working in Chinese ministry is for a lot of you, your parents are one of the most bittersweet parts of your life. Bitter because you have pressure. Like in America... I have met, I'm not kidding you, I have met children named after Harvard. <laughs> like their name is Hoffoot. <laughs> I've seen people name their kids Cornell. So that they're thinking that if I name them, they'll go to that school. When I was growing up, my parents worked six or seven days. They put me in Chinese school, piano school, right? And they were poor. But they put me in it. But they had to pull me out because I would always make fun of the teachers. Like, my, I made my piano teacher cry. Like, I was like, how old are you? I'm 30. How come you're still single? <laughs> and she goes, can you just play the piano? 
I said, you're single, you're single. <laughs> nobody loves you, nobody loves you, nobody loves you. Because you're ugly, you're ugly, you're ugly. <laughs> and then my mom's like, uh, I don't want to teach your son anymore. And they're like, why? She's like, oh, he's just really, I don't think he really likes piano. But I didn't tell her. But the bittersweet part is that the reality is that some of us in this room have so much pressure from our family. And they would tell you like crazy stories to guilt you into accomplishing because they sacrifice so much, right? How many of you have heard that from your parents, that they sacrifice so much? My mom used to tell me, oh, you know, I was like, oh, I don't feel like going to school. I don't feel well. They're like, oh, you don't feel well? You know, when I was in China, <laughs> the communists would shoot me. And I would get shot in the neck. But I would just put a Band-Aid. <laughs> then get on a water buffalo and travel 10 miles. Then we walk 50 miles. And then the communists would shoot me in the back. <laughs> and they never said that, but it felt like that. And like, you don't want to go to school? This is what we have to do when we go to school. And I went, okay, I'll go to school. But my parents put so much pressure on me that... I was like, I think, clinically depressed when I was in school because I didn't have a father. I didn't have a mother. I only saw my father at, on Sundays when he would come home at 10 o'clock on Saturday night. And the only time I would see him was on Saturday night from maybe Sunday morning when he leaves to go to work at 7. And I remember, I remember like one of the f most clearest memories of my childhood was I would pretend to sleep, and the minute I hear my dad come home at 10, I would run, to, I would just peek into my, I open the door and just peek, just so I can look at my dad. Just to look at him. And in the morning, I would wake up before 7 just to see him sleep. That was me as a kid. Because my parents were working so hard. And my dad, the times that he was able to eat dinner with us, he always, the only thing he would say to me, get good grades. Get good grades. And I was always perplexed because I would come home and I would get an A minus. I would get an A minus. My dad would be like, what happened to the other point? And they would hit me. And my mom would say, A minus. I didn't go travel to America with the communists shooting me <laughs> and stabbing me in the neck so that you can go and have an A minus. So all these laws, and in this particular case, this relationship with his father is broken because all he saw his father was what? A resource. Now, for Jewish readers, for us, you might not know it, but for Jewish readers, when they first heard this story, they were absolutely astounded because when do you get your estate? When do you ask for your money for your estate at home? It's when your father or mother's dead. So he's essentially asking, give me the money so you can die. Just die. You're dead to me. And to have that kind of sense of all these three loves kind of all becoming distorted. And if we're in this room having epithemia, it's going to destroy you. If you're going to pursue love, eros, without a real clear understanding of how do we pursue it under the girding of agape, it's going to destroy you. If you have storhe, even if those of you who are parents, when I'm a parent, I cannot put the weight on my kid of him accomplishing the things for me for what I, to validate me. It's like carrying, it's like putting a 10,000-pound weight on my son and say, walk. He was never made to carry that kind of weight. And if that's the kind of weight that distorted love again, you're seeing validation. 
you're seeking something to say, I matter because I'm going to get all these different kinds of love. Or phileo, that if I get a certain amount of friends, if I get into this crowd, and if I get into this group of people, then I'm going to be feeling validated. And he went through all of this. He went, he said, I want all of these things. And it destroyed him until finally he goes back. He goes back and he runs to his father. And here's this interesting thing. He rehearses. He's about to rehearse what he's going to say. He doesn't just go and say, oh, you know, dad, 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 I sin against you. I sin against heaven, please. Just hire me. He rehearses it. Spurgeon, one of my favorite sermons ever, said that the son is using his mouth to make a deal with the father. But what does this text say? How does the father use his lips? He kisses him. Kisses him. That's agape. And it was an amazing picture that even when he was far off, which basically meant that he was waiting upon his son. Again, for Jewish readers, the idea of the father running, picking up his clothes to run was obscene, was undignified, it was shameful. He had a shameful running to his son to receive him. And what's profound to me is that, again, this idea of all these loves can be redeemed under the guise of agape. Because we're lost, but now that we're found, but now that we're found, it's just not simply that you're found. That's the whole dynamic of the gospel. And there's Jesus trying to teach these religious leaders in the context of saying, well, you're sitting with all these sinners, these transgressors, these people that you should not be hanging out with. And he gives them these three parables. Because he wants them to know this is the heart of God. That I want to redeem all of these things. They're not necessarily bad because they've been given by God. So now, Theros, I wake up in the morning and pray for my wife. She's not there to validate me. I'm not there to validate her. Her joy does not rise and fall upon me. My joy does not fall, rise and fall upon her. But rather, in this eros, this kind of romantic love, we see our marriage as a place of ministry to serve others. Because we have agape. When it comes to phileo, when it's redeemed. Now, some of you, I'm just going to be really harsh with you, especially church guys and church, I don't know about church girls, because I don't really minister to girls. Because I'm very awkward around women. I don't know what to say to you. And then even today, I met some girl, and I really liked her name. I was like, wow, your name is so beautiful. And then the counselor's like, you're flirting with her. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I wish that was my daughter's name. Um, so I don't know what to do with women, but with guys. Some of you actually don't know how to be good friends to your brothers. A lot of what you do, and I'm talking to young kids too, all you young brothers and older brothers, you use your friends to do what? To medicate your loneliness. And you just like having fun together. But there's no agape, no interjection of like wanting this person to be godly. Because believing that being godly would actually be good for them. So we spend a lot of time settling for making our friends happy. So make me happy instead of making me holy. 
And I see so many of that friendship just driven by this, again, this need for you to serve my needs. So you go online and you play whatever video game that's out there. Uh, recently, a, a bunch of guys in our church went back to the old school days of playing COD, Call of Duty. And they would spend three hours just playing with other 14-year-old kids. 30-year-old men playing with 14-year-old kids. Yelling, yo, I got you, man. And the little boy's like, oh, I'm okay, sorry. Like, destroyed you, little punk. I'm like, a grown-ass man. (laughs) Ass is the biblical words in the Bible, so I can say it (laughs) for donkey. But grown-ass man playing with 14-year-old kids. And other 30-year-old men getting together. You know, one of the most primary things I do for post-marriage counseling, this is actually sad. When I do post-marriage counseling now, when people, wives come up to me, you know what the major complaint is now these days? My husband is playing video games in the room three or four hours a day. Because they have this in their mind that I'm in this adventure story that I'm saving America from Russia. Killing 14-year-old kids from across the world. And their friendships is nothing to do with any godliness. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong. You could play. But are you helping your brother grow and mature and being who I am, who they're made to be? And I've seen men in our church also who have come together every single, every other week to come together to grow together. Not because they're there to serve me, but to serve each other. I've seen husbands in our church right now who have made a commitment not to their wives, but to God. And that's what agape does to redeem storhe. Or phileo, I'm sorry. And then storhe, now even with my own parents, I have this icebreaker that I usually do with adults. I say, what, do you, what would you say to your 14-year-old self? You know what I would tell my 14-year-old self? I would tell them two things. Get beat up by the gangs. It's okay. Still say no, because they ruined my life for one season. But God redeemed it. Number two, I would say, your parents love you more than anyone in this world. My relationship with my parents, and I'll share a little bit in the next couple of weeks, they disowned me when I went into full-time ministry. Disowned me. My mom says, don't call me. You're dead to me. She told all my relatives that I moved to another country while I was still living in Queens because my mother didn't want to have anything to do with me because I went to full-time ministry. And I'll share how God redeemed it once I said, you know what, I can't live for their approval anymore. I can't. But I wanted to love them and extend it. And now, just to kind of give you a picture, my relationship with my parents is so incredibly redeemed now. I love them, they love me, they love my kids, I love them. And the incredible things that I didn't expect this, but the last two years they came to faith in Christ. Had nothing to do with me. It's not like I sat there preaching to them, it wasn't anything. It was just something that my mom felt the stirring in her heart at this stage in her life. She really wanted to discover something, brought my dad. And now they go to church. And my mom said to me one day, I believe in Jesus. And they came to our service. So when there's agape, there's not this kind of a desire or an over-desire for, them to, for, for you to get them and then restore you. But rather the agape kind of undergirds everything. 
so that when you have a lion heart, when you have this heart that I have courage because I have something that's kind of working in my heart, because if that doesn't happen, then you're always going to be in this epithemia. And the thing about epithemia is this triple paradox, which basically is that once you want it, you think that if I get it, I have power over it. But once you actually get it, it has power over you. And you actually lose power. And that's how it always works. You get something. You get a girlfriend because you think you have power now. But once you give power to that, very thing that you think will have power will actually take away power. And destroy you. And that's a triple paradox of it. But this self-giving love, this redemption, this idea that this father is running, it gives us clarity. So if you're in this room and you're like, oh, I love this passage because I get to sin, I get to sin, I get to sin, and then God will receive me back. You've heard the wrong message. But rather it's to show you how much God wants you. That you're in this room, you're like, yo, Peter, you have no idea what I've been through, bro. You have no idea. You have no idea what I've done this week, last week, what I've looked at on the internet, what I've done to this girl, what I've done to this boy, what I've said to my mother before I even came here. How I bullied this kid, how I did this. You could come to this room and say, yo, I have stuff that I, I came to this conference with. But the heart of repentance is like, I'm going to the Father asking for mercy and saying, I need you. I have nothing left anymore. And some of you have to go through that process. I don't want you to, but some of you have to. I've been in youth ministry long enough to know some of my finest kids. Like some of you look like these kids that I love and adore, and they were like the superstars of our youth ministry. And I've seen them fall away. Easily. But what I hold fast to is one day, I hope, not that they get to, that I want them to get into a desperate situation, but sometimes God has to use a desperate situation to bring you back. Because they're not mine. I'm not the Holy Spirit. They're God's. But here's this passage saying, wherever you've been, whatever heart that you think, yo, I have courage, yo, Peter, I got courage to try things. I'm not like these other Christians, man. Look, they're so corny. All they do is go, I don't know, do you go bowling? <laughs> Yo, on Friday nights, all they do is play Uno. I go out and I party and I do this stuff. Yo, I, I know how to live it up. And I was like, dude, try it. Keep going, bro. Go strong. I've been there. One day, you're going to look at the end of that bottle. You're like, yo, it just doesn't have the same effect on me anymore. After the six, seven girls, like, yo, I don't have the same effect on me anymore. Why is that? Why is that? Because God has built into you something that only can be satisfied in God. You want a lion heart? It can only be given by God. So we're going to spend some time. I'm going to ask you where you are right now. Which is the love that is kind of being your epithemia right now? What is the thing that's kind of dominating you? That you wish that, you know what, I have this over-desire. And we're going to spend some time in this, the biblical term is called selah. Not sailor. <laughs> I hold a sailor. You know, like, no, not, it's sailor. It's a Hebrew term. A lot of commentators are not really quite sure what it means, but it, most of them would say it was a musical note or a pause. And we're going to take a pause. And after each talk, I want us to have a moment of sailor. As the worship team comes up, just have a time of just thinking through where am I in this, these loves? 
is my over-desire for my family because I'm so desperate for my father and mother's approval? Am I in this phileo situation where I have friends and fam- friends around me that I just, I've broken relationships, they've broken relationships with me, I want it, and I'm dying? There's arrows, you're in a relationship, or you've been in a relationship, it's become an over-desire. It could be even like you've been involved sexually because you're just over-desired and given into the temptation, and you're there, go to God. And he's here, and he's promising you to give you agape. Let's pray. Father, we pray for clarity on this. The truth that there is an epithemia distortion of our desires. That the desires that you give us is good. For sexual romantic love, it's good. That's how you describe your church as a bride. For storhe, how you call us into adoption, into the family. That our desire to be part of a family is good. And phileo, this idea that Christ himself would come to us and say, you know, you don't have to no longer you call me Lord, but you can call me friend. And how wonderful this agape love, this idea that you love us like this father who shamefully ran to the son and how that points to Christ, how he shamefully went to the cross so that he can pursue us. And if we're in this room right now, we're like, you know what? I've gone way too far. I think I'm way beyond the stretch of grace that I would challenge him to look at the cross, our bleeding savior who is atoning us for our sins to say, you know what? To tell God that your blood is not enough. Let's run to him. Let's return to him to the Father's house. And help us to believe this to be true in Jesus' name.